Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, I don't think anyone showed up early this morning, uh, so you all turned your clocks back. So, so good job. So you're well rested. I'm sure your kids slept in and parents, you, you're very well rested because you got that extra hour of sleep, right? Um, so, so we're going to be very attentive and excited and energetic this morning, right? Um, <laughs> there's an, enough giggles that I know that's not true. So, um, so anyway, welcome. We, we are glad that you're with us this morning. And uh, if you're a guest or visitor, my name is Penny. I'm the pastor here, and, and we're really glad that you're with us, that we can gather together as God's people. Um, this is a great privilege that we come together and we get to worship together and sing and sit under God's Word. And the portion of God's Word that we're going to be looking at this morning is from Exodus chapter 18. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there or you can uh, follow along in your order of service. Um, Exodus 18. So God's people, if you recall, just recently have uh, trounced the Amalekites. They have uh, won a great victory over them thanks to the Lord and his great work. They've been walking through the wilderness. They're moving towards the mountain, Mount Sinai, and from Mount Sinai, God will give them his law. And so Exodus 18 is almost like a transitional sort of uh, chapter. Uh, they're coming out of the wilderness and coming to meet with the Lord at Mount Sinai. Now, there's going to be more wilderness wandering to come, but, but they're about to receive from God himself his very word. And so so this is a transition, and in this chapter, what we're seeing is that God's people, before they are confronted with God's law, they're going to be confronted by God himself. They're confronted by God in the form of realizing and recognizing their inability and their need, and God's ability and his ability to solve the problem of their need. And so let's go ahead and follow along. Uh, Exodus chapter 18, we'll begin at verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh." Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and with his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent." Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. 
When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times." Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So a number of years ago, uh, there was a commercial that Sprint put out on television. It was... uh, advertising for their new iPhone 5 and the plan that they had for it. So we're on like iPhone 8 or and 10 right now. I don't know what happened to iPhone 9, but, but we just skipped it. So it was, you know, iPhone 8, 10. So iPhone 5 was probably like three or four years ago. Well, regardless, they had this commercial. And on this commercial, it was what you would expect for a smartphone, right? It was kids running around and frolicking and having fun outside and mom sitting there taking pictures and following them with the video and all these sorts of things. And And as these different things are occurring, as the camera is capturing all these aspects of the human experience, there's this voiceover that comes. It says, we can share every second in data dressed as pixels, a billion photojournalists uploading the human experience, and it is spectacular. So why would you cap that? My iPhone 5 can see every point of view. Every panorama, the entire gallery of humanity, I need to upload all of me. I need, no, I have the right to be unlimited. And then before the scene fades away, before it goes to black and goes to whatever the next commercial is, there there are these words that show up on the screen, not voiced over anymore, you're supposed to read them, and they say, I am unlimited. I am unlimited. Not my data plan's unlimited. (laughs) Not my minutes are unlimited. Not that the amount of photos I can take with my wonderful new iPhone 5, which is now outdated, by the way, but, but not that all those photos are unlimited, but I am unlimited. What do you think about that? That I am unlimited? That my experience in this world 
in my humanity, in my body, that I am to be unlimited. Well, the writer, uh, Tish Harrison Warren, uh, she writes about this. She says, this is the message we receive from our culture. No limits. Nothing should stop you, slow you down, or limit your freedom. Not even human embodiment. You can be unlimited, and if you're not, someone's to blame. We believe that we need better technology, better efficiency, and better organization so that we can exist as people unbridled by creaturely limits. We can be boundless, competent, and utterly self-determining. She's right. That is the message of our culture. That is the message of our culture. That we can actually live lives in existence, that we can live our lives in such a way that is completely unbridled, that, that the places in which we are constrained, that we should actually resist that, we should push against it, because our lives to be human is to be unlimited. That's what our culture tells us. Now, I imagine that if we were sitting over coffee, or we were in our homes, and that uh, that commercial showed up on the TV screen, or we were talking about it, we would all laugh at the absurdity of that notion, that I can live an unlimited life. We would laugh at that, right? Because we know in our humanity we can't live unlimited lives, right? Because we get tired, and we get sick, and we get sore, and we just know we don't have the emotional capacity to deal with whatever might be coming next. But we know that And we would say that with our words, but our actions communicate the exact opposite. Because I know we communicate the exact opposite because we hate to say things like, I need your help. Right? I hate saying that. (laughs) I don't want to call someone and say, hey, hey, I have this big thing occurring or about to happen, and I need you to help me. I don't want to say that to someone because I don't want them to think I'm limited. (laughs) We hate to say, I need your help. Or we hate to say, I don't have enough room on my calendar. I'll squeeze you in somewhere. Or we don't want to tell someone we don't have the emotional capacity to enter into this conversation in this moment. Can we wait a couple days? We don't like doing those things. We don't like admitting that we are limited human beings. And yet that's what we are. Right? That's who we are. We know that we are not unlimited. We know that we are finite beings. And this passage is helping us to see that. It's helping us to see actually more than that because this passage is helping us to not just see that we are limited, but to embrace the fact that we are limited. To embrace that in our human experience that we shouldn't have to apologize for not being able to do everything. (laughs) That it's actually something that is good. So here's the thing, like even before Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden, even before the fall, they were limited people. In their humanity, they were limited. Our limitedness is not a product of our sin. It's just what it means to be human. And so we should embrace that, and that's what this passage is helping us to see. Now we're going to see it first in the second half of our passage. Because in the second half of our passage, first we we see that we are to embrace the limits in the realm of our responsibilities, in the realm of our responsibilities. Okay, so the context here is Moses. He's the great prophet of the Old Testament. He's the leader of God's people, and all these disputes are arising amongst God's people. You could imagine what the disputes might be, 
right? Like, she took some of my manna. <laughs> no, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I did right? Like, that kind of argument. Or, or his ox gored my sheep. Or that kid was running through the camp, and he totally took out my tent. And why are your kids running in the camp anyway? I mean, hypothetically, maybe, maybe you've heard those sorts of disputes. But, um, but that's the kind of thing that they're probably saying, right? And and it's really not hard for us to imagine that those sorts of disputes would arise, right? I mean, amongst God's people, that there would be arguments. and dis- I mean, I don't know what kind of church Moses is leading, but, but that would never happen anywhere else, right? I mean, come on. No, but seriously, disputes happen. They arise. They're complaining, and they can't find the solution. And so what do they do? Well, they go to Moses. And that makes sense. He's the prophet of God. He's God's leader. This is why they're paying him the money, the big bucks, right? He's supposed to do this. That's what he says to his father-in-law in in verse 15. Jethro asks, why are you doing this? And he says, um, he says, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses is the judge. He is the decider of disputes. We're told, actually, in this passage that was occurring from morning until night. And so, basically, what Moses is, he is the embodiment of what the Harvard Business School writers, Heifetz and Linsky, called the hero leader. Okay, so there's these problems, and if you got a problem and you can't solve it, who do you go to? The guy with the metaphorical red cape and the big S on his chest, because he'll solve all your problems. He's the hero leader. That's who Moses is. And it makes sense. He's the one who God has raised up. There are disputes that need resolving. And so, of course, Moses should be taking this on, right? So what does Jethro say? Moses' father-in-law? Okay, so imagine this. Moses' father-in-law, he shows up for a day at the office. He's watching Moses and all his responsibilities, all the things he's doing. And you would think that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, would be standing back and he'd just be filled up with all this pride as he sees... Moses using his gifts and his abilities to handle all these problems, right? That's what you'd think. But what does he say? Look at verse 17. He says, what you are doing is not good. I can't help but think that maybe like every pastor should have that above their door. (laughs) But he goes on, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. You're not able to do it alone. Jethro is saying, Moses, you can't do this. You don't have the ability or the capacity to handle this kind of responsibility on your own. You need to embrace your limitations and share your work. And so Jethro gives him this wise counsel. Raise up for you men. Men who are godly men, who love the Lord who fear the Lord, who are trustworthy, who don't love money, and put them over tens and hundreds and fifties and thousands. Let them share the work with you. And so Jethro is actually starting the roots of Presbyterianism. (laughs) It's what it is. Shared leadership, right? I'm just one elder amongst a handful of them, right? We have shared leadership. That's what Presbyterianism is, right? We're a We're a multitude of leaders sharing the load of shepherding God's people. Now, Moses is still to handle the difficult cases, but there are those who are to handle other 
cases as well, allowed the gifted men to assist in supervising over the people. And this sounds so wise, right? But I want you to think about this for a second. Who's Jethro again? Moses' father-in-law. Thirteen times he's called Moses' father-in-law. So the passage really wants us to know it's his father-in-law, right? So I just want you to think about if your father-in-law showed up at your place of work and watched you for a day and then said, what you're doing is not good. How do you think you would respond? (laughs) Thanks, Dad. (laughs) Right? No, you'd say, like, don't ever come back again. You know, don't tell me how to do, right? That's what we would do. But I love what Moses does. He hears this wise advice. And how does he respond in verse 24? Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. What's wonderful about that is that Moses is even acknowledging his limits in what he knows to be good and not good, right? He's, he's heeding the advice of someone who is wiser, who maybe might have a, a little different opinion, a different spin, a different understanding. He's heeding the counsel of someone else a little bit older, a little bit more seasoned. I love that. He's so humble. He's embracing his limitations, not just physically, but even in what he knows to be good. I can almost hear the sigh of relief as Moses does what his father-in-law asks him to. He can't do it alone. He's learning to embrace his limitations, and friends, we must must as well. The French reformer, John Calvin, he said it this way. He said, no single mortal can be sufficient to do everything, however many and various may be the endowments wherein he excels. For who shall equal Moses, whom we have still seen to be unequal to the burden when he undertook the whole care of governing the people? Let then God's servants learn to measure carefully their powers, lest they should wear out by ambitiously embracing too many occupations, for one ray of the sun does not illuminate the world." Do you hear what Calvin's saying? Now, Calvin probably should have heeded his own advice because he worked himself to death, but that's, that's neither here nor there. But he's basically saying, look, if Moses couldn't do it, what makes you think you could? Moses is the great prophet of God of the Old Testament. He met with God on the mountaintop. He had the staff. He struck it with the rock, struck the rock with it. And he can't handle this? Why do you think that you could? It's basically what Calvin's saying. No matter how gifted you are, and I'll tell y'all, some of y'all are very gifted people. Intelligent, skilled, relationally aware. I mean, that's who some of you are. Many of you are. And, And the truth is, is that no matter how gifted you are, no one has the gift of limitless ability. We're all limited. And we need to embrace that. And so we need to learn to say no. You need to learn to say no. You need to learn to say no, no to good things. You know, it's really easy to say no to bad things. <laughs> it's easy to say no to uh, that relationship that is, um, that is completely unhealthy and keeps taking you into sinful patterns. Like, it's easier to say no to that. But... It, but it's hard to say no to those really good things, right? Those things that you go, you look at and you, you think, well, well, I can do that. If, if, if I only make a little bit more time, if, if I only give myself a little bit more, if I sleep a little bit less, if I, 
if I do whatever, if I rearrange my schedule, then I can take that extra thing on. It's, it's harder to say no to those good things. I mean, think about how good it was that Moses was saying no to. God's people were disputing, and they wanted it resolved, right? He had opportunity to share the law of God with them and lead them in the way that they were to go. And he, for the sake of himself and for the people, that's what Jethro said, needed to say no. And we need to learn how to do that. We need to learn how to say no to good things. So that we can actually say yes to the things that we're actually called to. You see, if we say yes to everything, the truth is is that we'll do nothing well. We'll just lead these lives of, of mediocrity. If we say yes to everything, we'll do nothing well. And so, so we need those people like Jethro who speak into our life and tell us when to say no and help us to see when it is we need to say no. And so this is actually why I'm really thankful for Presbyterianism. <laughs> I mean, how often do you hear that? <laughs> I'm thankful for Presbyterian. I am. It is a good, good thing because just recently our elders, I came to them. I came to them because I'd been asked to do something in our community that was really good. It was going to be really fun. I was really excited about it. It was totally in my skill set. I was like, man, this is going to be awesome. But, you know, I, I said to them, uh, I, I don't know if I really have the time, but I bet I could make the time for it. And you know what they said to me? They basically said what Jethro said. <laughs> they said, Penny, uh, what you're about to do is not good. Because you could do it, and you could make time, and you will wear yourself out, and you will wear your family out. And so I'm thankful for these men who said no to me. And Kat's thankful to them as well. (laughs) 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 Uh, But seriously, who's helping you to say no? Who's helping you to look at your life and to look at all the things that you're filling your life with? And who's saying to you, you are a limited human being who needs to embrace your limits? Maybe it should be me. Maybe it's our elders. Maybe it's the people in your community group. Maybe it's your spouse. Like, husbands, when was the last time you let your wife look at your calendar? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you don't, right? Uh, You don't give her that password. Um, But when was the last time we let our wives tell us, you know what, you you probably need to be home a little bit more. You need to say no to that thing that you've been asked to participate in. Now listen, this is an excuse to do nothing. (laughs) Moses still kept his responsibilities, right? Did you notice that? He still kept his responsibilities, And he gave responsibility away, but he still kept him himself. It's not an excuse to do nothing. It's an excuse to do what you are called to do. And so I don't know what all of your callings are. I don't know what your primary callings are. But but whatever it is, you should say no to things that are hindering your ability to do what it is that you are called to do. And parents, this is our responsibility to help our kids do this. Because the truth is, is that we live at a time when kids are busier and more programmed and more burdened with more activities and hours and hours of homework despite the research that shows that it is not good for them. They are more burdened now than they are probably in any other time in history, and we contribute to that. Like, we encourage that because we don't tell them no. Like me. Like, I'm not just talking to y'all. 
we need to be willing to help them, to say that to them. For your sake, you don't need to be part of that extracurricular activity. For your sake, it's okay if you don't finish this homework tonight because I see the burden that you are bearing. We need to be willing to tell our kids that, to help them embrace the fact that they are limited, even as we are learning to embrace that ourselves. Now look, not one of us is sufficient to do everything because if we were, we wouldn't need each other. We wouldn't need each other. And we also wouldn't need the Lord. And that's where the first half of this passage leads us to. It tells us that we're not just limited in regards to our responsibilities, but we're also limited in regards to our salvation. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that we are unable to accomplish salvation for ourselves. That we're limited in that. We can't accomplish it. See, the Bible is very clear that when Adam and Eve sinned against God, when they rebelled in the garden, that they brought sin into this world, and we are inheritors of that because we are the progeny of Adam and Eve. And so we are born into that sin. And because we are born into that sin, we have it in our hearts and in our minds. There's, there's everything in us that is in rebellion against God. Our sinful hearts are turning away from him, and everything about us is inclined not to obey the Lord, but actually to rebel against him. That's why Paul in Romans says that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. And then he goes on, if you're familiar with Romans chapter 3, he goes on and lists all the ways that we have turned from God, how we use our tongues for evil, how we use our minds against the Lord, how our hearts are turned away from his ways, how our hands, our ethic has been tainted by sin. We cannot see God on our own. The very thing that we need, salvation from sin, we cannot achieve for ourselves. And we have to be reminded of this. We need to be mindful of it. Because we actually live in a time where we are bombarded in our culture with the idea that any problem that you face in the world, any difficulty that you're confronted with regularly, it's just a self-help book away from solving it yourself. So this past week, I, I went on Amazon. It was like Monday or Tuesday, so it may have changed so if you go on and it's different, I'm not lying, just new books were published. But I searched self-help books on Amazon. 717,716 books popped up designated self-help. If you've got a problem, here's a book so you can solve it yourself. But you can't do that with sin. You can't do that with sin. I can't solve that problem, and you can't, and there's not a self-help book that can do it either. No, the only thing that can solve the problem of sin is the power and grace of God, and that's the theme of this first half of this chapter. See, the first 12 verses is a reunion between Moses and Jethro and his wife and his kids. But the emphasis isn't on the reunion or what Moses has done or what Israel has done, but it's on what God has done. Look at verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Did you hear that? News had spread. 
that Egypt had been defeated, and Jethro rightly associates Israel's victory, not with Israel or not with Moses, but with the Lord. And Moses confirms that. He goes out and meets him. I love that they kind of checked in, like, how's life been? That's basically what, what they're doing, right? And then he goes into the tent, and he says to, we're told that Moses says in verse 8, when they entered the tent, Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. God decla- or Moses declared to Jethro, his father-in-law, all that the Lord had done. But think about who else Jethro is. He's not just Moses' father-in-law, but who else is he? He's the priest of Midian. He's a pagan priest. Okay, he shows up in this passage, and he's not a follower of Yahweh. He shows up in this passage, and he's a priest of Midian. And what does Moses do? He takes him into his tent, and he shares with this pagan priest all that God has done. He doesn't talk about his coolness under pressure. He doesn't talk about the bold words he spoke to Pharaoh. He doesn't talk about how Israel trounced the Amalekites, who were probably a people who were culturally or racially akin to the Midianites. He doesn't talk about any of those things. He talks about how the Lord delivered them. How the Lord delivered them, that's what he tells him. It is God who has saved us. It is God who has rescued us. It is God who has delivered us. And I love that he... We're told that he talked about the hardship that had come as well. The hardship that had come upon them in a way. I love that because Moses is being honest with the difficulty of the human experience, but he's also honest with the fact that it is God who has saved them from this difficulty. He doesn't just whitewash it. He says it was hard, but God saved us from the hardship. See, Moses is pointing, even in that statement, to their inability. That they need to rely on the ability of God for their salvation. What they are unable to do, God is able to do. He is the one who saved them. And Moses knew all too well his inability to deliver himself and Israel. And so I have to ask you, do you know that? Do you know that you are unable Do you claim that? You know, even in our sanctification, sometimes I think that it's easy for us to just kind of go, you know, Jesus, I'm thankful that you saved me, but I got it from here. <laughs> and yet, friends, we, we're not able on our own to even grow in the likeness of Christ. That even in our sanctification, we need the power of the Holy Spirit It is a work of God's Spirit. That's what the Shorter Catechism tells us. It is a work of God's Spirit that enables us to die more and more unto sin and live unto righteousness, to become more and more like Christ. It is the work of the Holy Spirit working in us to be able to do that. That we are unable. But do you believe that? Because listen, y'all are pretty smart. And y'all are very successful and your kids are really fun. And it's great to be around you. And you are completely unable to do what you ultimately need. You can't save yourself. Moses knew it, and Jethro is realizing it. Look what he does. He hears what God has done. And so in verse 10 through 12, he responds. And look what he says. 
Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. You know, many commentators think that what we're observing in these verses is Jethro's conversion. Now, we don't know for sure. We don't know his heart. But just look at what occurs. Look, look at the way it works out. This pagan priest is confronted by the fact that there is no salvation, heaven on and on earth, apart from the Lord. And so what does he do? He declares with his mouth, the Lord is greater than all the gods. That word Lord, you remember from like months and months ago when we were in the beginnings of Exodus. When it's in small caps, it's the divine name Yahweh. So he's not just saying there's some Lord. He's not just saying there's any God. He's not just saying this is one God among many. He's saying the Lord, Yahweh, is God of all gods. He's greater than all the gods. He's greater than the gods of Egypt. He's greater than the gods of Midian. He's greater than the gods of the Amalekites. He is the true God. That's what he's declaring. He says it with his mouth. But then he moves on. He doesn't stop there. The progression, he then offers sacrifices and burnt offerings. He worships him. He doesn't just declare with his mouth, but he now worships him. And then he communes with God's people. Aaron and the elders, the representatives of God's people, they gather with him and they eat. They eat this fellowship, perhaps even a covenantal meal before the Lord. He's received into the body of believers. He's received into the people. And friends, for all those who are trusting in the Lord, this is what our lives are to look like. This is what our lives are to look like. We are to recognize our sin and our inability to save ourselves. And we are to call on the name of the God who is able to save. Believing that he is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords, that he is the only one who can deliver us from our sin, and by the work of Christ he has. The thing that we needed him to do, he did for us. In taking our sin upon himself and dying in our place and rising again from the dead, we call upon that name. The New Testament says that is the name above all names and that in, in the end times that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Some of them will do it out of a heart of gratitude and others will do it disparagingly. But everyone will recognize that he is the king. And so we call out on his name today. We don't just wait for that future day. Today we call out that he is the Lord, that he is the one who has saved us. And we celebrate all that he has accomplished. He has saved us. He is, we celebrate the fact that we, we are not under eternal death or judgment or sin any longer, but he has freed us from those things. We celebrate that. We worship him. We dine at his table as his people. We eat a covenantal meal. I mean, that's why we do this every single Sunday. Every single Sunday, we gather together as God's people, and we not only sit under his word, and we not only worship him with praise, but we also eat with him at his table. That we dine together, and we feed upon the bread and the cup, and we declare his death until he comes, because he has done what no one else could do. 
Friends, we come. We come to this table. We come this morning and we come every day and every Sunday and we come from here until he returns and even into eternity declaring our inability that we are not able to save ourselves, but he, he is able to do exactly what we needed and he has. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have done what we have needed. You have rescued your people. You have saved us. You have delivered us from sin and death, from hell and the grave. And so we praise you. And we declare with Jethro that you are the God above all gods. We declare with the the word that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We declare that you are our Savior. And so we turn to you in our need. We turn to you in our inability and we declare you are able, and we worship you, because in your ability, you have used your power and strength to save and to deliver. And so, Father, we ask that you would lead us now, and that you would make us mindful of this all our days, so that our lives would be lived in constant worship of you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.